All right, and welcome to the show. This upload is coming to you October the 19th, 2016. And you're listening to the Post Money Plan Podcast. This episode will be talking about digital currencies. This episode is co-hosted by myself, Dallas Post, the founder of the Post Money Plan, Tom Dickens, Stephen Ngao, and Abe Elsaid. So we'll just go around and say a little bit about ourselves. All right, I'll go first. Hi, my name is Stephen Ngao. I'm a fund manager for the Department of Medicine at a renowned academic institution. Uh, essentially, I act as a financial accountant for the biomedical research realm. Uh, monies that doctors receive in the form of government-backed grants and private contracts are under my sole supervision. Previously, I worked in the corporate financial services department, also the same organization. The financial system operated within my organization is a great linchpin for future cryptocurrency systems to emulate. All right. Tom or Abe? Uh, sure, I'll go. I'm uh, Tom Dickens. I am a um, underwriting insurance professional. I've been involved in uh, numerous insurance companies from numerous sides, so quite a good understanding of uh, how things work on that end. But I'm uh, a very uh, passionate economist. I'm from the Austrian school of thought and a libertarian political philosophy. I'm Korean economics, and I uh, study it study it pretty religiously. I would even say I learn more outside of my schooling than I did in my schooling. And I'm uh, fascinated with all subjects that have to do with all ranges of economics, politics, and basically the system of mankind and how uh, product services and well-being is generated as a whole. All right, uh, Abe? Sure, my name is Abe Ossiez. I am a finance analyst at a telecommunications company that deals with tower building for major cellular uh, service provider in the U.S., I have previous biochemical experience, and I have broad interests in various economic issues involving politics, society, and especially with the rise of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, seeing how that's going to affect um, economics as a whole and the future of banking and, and commerce. So, All right, cool. So in this episode, like I said, we're covering digital currencies. So some of the things we're going to go over are uh, what are digital currencies, why have they come to prominence in the last few years, how they work technically, uh, how they're currently regulated, the pros and cons of various digital currencies, which digital currencies are the most popular and some nuances about them, some recent developments among digital currencies, and what the future looks like for digital currencies. So let's jump right into it. In terms of what a digital currency is, Tom, why don't you just start us off? Well, a currency, might as well start there. A currency is basically it's a medium of exchange. Gold was the first medium of exchange. Before that was the barter system where people used to trade sheep for hay or you know wood for shoes. And it was just really cumbersome because you'd have to have a wagon of goods and trade it for a wagon of goods. Soon gold became the medium of exchange. Gold became a valuable resource because it was a scarce resource. And then, uh, but then the problem with that is that if you have a whole pile of gold, all it takes is a couple of guys with some swords to come and steal it from you and you lose all your wealth. So this is where banking institutions became valuable, people to protect gold. And they had to protect people's wealth. Protection became an extremely valuable part of wealth, which is how banks came to pass. And then currency was created because you needed something to represent how much you own as an institution. And then it was very easy to trade goods because you could just trade something that represented this is worth two gold bars or whatever, so I'll buy your, your block or whatever. 
So currency really is like just basically a medium in exchange. It's a way of representing goods or services or human work potential, in other words. I mean, obviously, there's a bunch of different currencies. Each country has its own currency. Some are backed by different things. Lots of them are fiat nowadays, but... Digital currency is basically a new thing where it's, it's a currency that you can purchase through money, which is another currency. And it's uh, backed by, instead of backed by gold, like currencies used to be, it's backed by things called blockchain. So one thing about digital currencies that makes them att attractive is that they're actually backed by something, which is this blockchain, right? This is a limited yeah. resource. It takes a lot of computational power. It takes a lot of manpower to continuously mine more bitcoins. In other words, you're building the chain bigger. This is one of the main arguments as to why they're actually worth something is because they're backed by human work or some, something has been produced. But the value of that is essentially zero. Like your ones and zeros in a blockchain are not actually worth anything in real life. They don't have any intrinsic value. But then the same could be said for gold, with the exception of like minor industrial applications. So, you know, in most currencies, all it really boils down to is confidence, right? Like you have to be have confidence in the currency. You have to have confidence in what the currency is backing. Yeah, exactly. Um, what we use nowadays is something called a fiat currency. Most countries do this. Most countries have gotten off gold standard. You know, some countries have tried to go back to the gold standard, but it hasn't ended well for them, and that's for a separate podcast. But most have gotten off gold standard, and fiat basically means that the thing that's backing the currency is the institution that issues it. Well, basically just the faith itself in, in the issuer, not a, an actual asset. Yeah, like confidence for the gold standard is like you're confident that gold is worth something. Confidence for the digital currency is you're confident that the blockchain is worth something. Like the amount of work it takes to build it is worth something. Confidence in fiat is just confidence in fiat. It's confidence that it will continue to exist. It's almost like confidence in confidence. It's really weird. Or that other people will accept it at reasonable yeah. price. But intrinsically, fiat currency is worth even less than real currency, right? It's worth nothing. It's just worth something because we've decided to make it worth something. But it is not backed by gold. It's not backed by blockchains. It's backed by faith in an institution. So the Federal Reserve in the United States or, you know, the Bank of Canada and Canada, a Bank of England and Britain, and so on and so forth. Mostly they're backed by central banks nowadays. And these banks have the power to print currency unwillingly. They don't need to mine new blockchains. They don't need to go to a gold mine and mine new gold. They can just print it. And this is kind of a really important base level distinction to understand about currencies because it is important to the rise of digital currency. In 1971, thanks to Richard Nixon, the United States got off the gold standard, which basically means that they... The Nixon shot. That, that's when fiat currency came. A like uh, blank check to print out currency, pretty much. Basically, yeah. I mean, like, the Federal Reserve was established much earlier than that. I think it was established in 1913. Yeah, 1913. 1912, I thought it was, but I might, yeah. don't quote me. The Fe yeah, Federal Reserve was established back then under Woodrow Wilson, and then they didn't really have quite have the power because you can't really print money and pay for wars and all this stuff if you're backed by gold. So it wasn't until 1971 when Richard Nixon got off the gold standard that, that we entered this fiat currency thing. So, like, if you really think about it, that's actually relatively soon. That's not very long ago that we yeah, experimented totally. with this fiat currency, right? That's most yeah. of our parents' generation. And if you study the history of fiat currency, it's quite alarming. I mean, it was the fall of the Roman Empire is pretty much primarily because they started to base their currency. That's well, or spending unlimitedly. Yeah, well, the base um, came from because they used to use coins in the Roman Empire that were backed by silver, like silver coins, copper coins, gold coins, all that stuff. 
and uh, the government need to pay for, or the government, the you know, the emperor needed to pay for these wars, right? These campaigns against the barbarians and stuff. And this is going back 3 BC, right? This is like a couple thousand years ago. But they needed to fight the barbarian hordes, and they needed to fight you know, all these armies and stuff. But they couldn't mine that all the silver and pay for it. So they decided that they were going to start filling the coins with lead. So they'd be like, you know, right. 75% silver, 25% lead or whatever. This is what de- this is where the word debasing came from. You're debasing the actual mineral that's in the coin and you're replacing it with something that's worthless like lead or something something similar so then uh, suddenly you can double or triple the size of your coins start handing these coins out to people but eventually right like it obviously loses value people don't take as much value in the coins in the marketplace they start to develop their own ways of trading because no lot these coins aren't worth anything and they want to end up tanking the roman empire and now what we're seeing in modern day since we got off the gold standard is that we are running into a lot of economic problems as a result of the almost seemingly unlimited amount of printing that's going on from the governments around the world. Uh, it's gotten to the point now where we're at interest rates are, have been 0% for almost a decade, quantitative easing. The massive amount of printing that's going on to sort of prop up our bubble economy is, is, is out of control and it's causing weight, uh, price inflation and all this stuff. And the reason I'm going like this in depth into it is because it's important to understand the effect this has on an economy. And there's a lot of people who understand this concept and they need to find they're looking at an alternative way to trade, an alternative medium of exchange that cannot be sort of corrupted by any body that's able to print seamlessly and unlimitedly and basically destroy your purchasing power over time. So the the fiat currency was the the thing that made that possible in the first place, where the government had an open checkbook that could spend an unlimited amount uh, because there there wasn't like you had to pay the gold back. Yeah, uh, and it's always always like if you look at the history of fiat currency, it's always been to pay for wars and. You know, it's always uh, empire expansion that causes all this stuff. And it's just too much of a powerful tool for the people who are able to control it. And it's really just an invisible tax, right? The more money you print into an economy, the less the money that people currently hold is worth. It's, you know, it's wow, pretty interesting. Invisible tax. I like how you wrote that down. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it, it, it reduces your purchasing power, right? Like, if, if you look, just to draw a simple example, if you have an economy... A mini economy, and there's only $40 in that economy, right? And then you introduce another $40 into the economy. Well, suddenly my dollar is worth half of what it was, right? It's, uh, it's the same principle as the Roman Empire when they were putting lead in their coins. Those coins are now worth half the gold they were worth. Yeah, exactly. I actually had a, an economics teacher who gave an example where if you were, had this little island economy, and then you know each, each person had 10 coins, and then a little leprechaun overnight gave everyone 10 more coins and everyone woke up and knew everyone else got 10 more coins, they'd know, oh, everyone now has 20 instead of 10. And so you're basically willing to spend two coins instead of one coin on the same bottle of water or whatever. So you haven't really changed anything. You've only changed the price of goods. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i on the side where I'm not a fan of the currency. There's some people, Keynesian economics, economists that are fans of it, Guys like Paul Krugman and stuff, right, won a Nobel Prize in economics. He's a big Keynesian. He's the sort of guy that will say that the problem with the economy is there isn't enough printing. I think he said something like, the economy needs more debt. It doesn't have enough debt. You know, He's a very big into the M3 money supply increase in the economy. He thinks it brings prosperity. So there's this is up to debate. You know, I have to give the other side of the argument. I don't want to be super biased, but there is a large group of economists that believe that controlling an economy and controlling the money supply is the way to maintain wealth levels and maintain prosperity. But um, 
that's debate for another time. But this is kind of one of the reasons why digital currencies are on the rise, though. It's because there's no way any individual can control the money supply on the digital currency. It's essentially worth what the market says it's worth. So it's a free market currency. There's no government governing body that controls it. The big thing is when governments can spend more than they really have. And that's where the, that invisible tax comes in, where if you have that fiat currency, a government has the ability to print whatever money it wants. Therefore, it can spend money that it doesn't really have. And then yeah, especially if they rationalize it for things like war. And then it comes across to the people as inflation and where their existing currency gets debased. In terms of what a digital currency is. Digital currencies are essentially a type of money or also known as a form of payment or a medium of exchange or a store of value. Uh, they're currently an alternative to traditional currencies like the U.S. dollar or the euro or the pound or whatever else, but they only exist electronically. And uh, currently, the market cap of all digital currencies is about $12.5 billion, which is about the same size as Twitter, just to give you an approximation. All right, so why have digital currencies come to prominence in the last few years? Towards the end of uh, what's known as the Great Recession and with the rise of you know mobile technology or just the internet in general, you had a culture of people that are understanding and witnessing how these big banks and politicians have kind of behind closed doors made decisions that have kind of put uh, the average person uh, out of the loop, so to say. So well, namely central banks. Yeah, central banks. So with the rise of cryptocurrencies, it, it kind of makes sense that, you know, if you look all across different industries, whether it's Uber or Airbnb, there's different types of, or even just like media, the media industry in general, there's different types of revolutions going on with technology where power is being spread out and, and readjusted to more towards the, the average consumer. So I think with the financial services industry, you're witnessing this now is it's not just Bitcoin. It's now people are evolving the Bitcoin technology into their own different things, like players like Ethereum that are well, it was the blockchain technology that which enabled this to happen in the first place, right? Yeah, and there's like two things you have to look at with the rise of cryptocurrencies. Like, there's two sides of the coin. Like, one is like the convenience factor. Yeah. Like, what like what about it makes purchasing goods and services more convenient, right? So there's that part, and then the other part is just sort of like the political economic factor and the reason why these things are rising. There were two other points I wanted to touch on on the um, prominence thing. So a lot of people started hearing about digital currencies, or more specifically Bitcoin, back in 2013, when all of a sudden Bitcoin started blowing up, when it went from like sub $100 per Bitcoin to over $1,000, all in the first few months of 2013, I think it was. And that, that got a lot of attention, and people uh, were talking about it who had never heard of it before. There was even an article I read about this guy who, when Bitcoin first came out, he was maybe a developer. He liked the idea of it, so he put a couple thousand dollars in it and then forgot about it. And then when it was blowing up like that, he remembered that he had put some money into it. And so he looked up his account and he had something like a million dollars worth of Bitcoin at that point in time. Wow. But there was one other thing that it was kind of a big publicity thing that brought it to attention was... In 2014, there was this Bitcoin exchange called Mt. Gox in China. The gathering? Yeah, which was founded based on trying to um, trade magic cards. But anyway, this exchange for Bitcoin called Mt. Gox all of a sudden collapsed and $450 million worth of Bitcoin it held for customers went missing. And so 
that drew a lot of attention and that uh, that was kind of a scandal that brought doubt on cryptocurrencies that people were kind of afraid if they couldn't trust exchanges. And so that was kind of a growing pain for the industry. Abe, do you know about the Silk Road incident? I was just going to bring that up, actually. So Silk Road was this online marketplace for, uh, I should say, online black marketplace for illicit activities, things like drugs and all that stuff were being purchased online. But the technology behind Silk Road, not only were they using Bitcoin for payment transactions, they're also using a, a mechanism known as Tor, which is, ironically, it was designed by the government some years ago. But it's basically a way to, so Tor stands for the onion router. So think of an onion, how it has several layers and you have to peel each layer off to get to the core. That was basically how somebody who wanted to have an anonymous trail where they would use like a ghost IP, like an IP address that could not be tracked by, uh, like say, the authorities if they're trying to trace down who's making a payment for some sort of illegal drug. So you could use a Tor mechanism to mask your identity, your computer's identity, which is what each IP address is. Internet protocol, it gives a computer an, uh, an address when you're on the internet. So Tor is a mechanism to camouflage your virtual location, whereas Bitcoin is used to camouflage your financial transactions. So a combination of those two mechanisms is what really drew popularity to illicit websites like Silk Road. But since, like, I think like since 2013, it's been shut down and the FBI had confiscated all their assets and I think they, like, they auctioned off their Bitcoins to whomever. Yeah, the, let's go in a bit more in depth on, on the tangent, but because of that scandal where people heard about the FBI shutting down Silk Road and that it was this uh, black market eBay that was using Bitcoins, that kind of brought Bitcoins to attention. So in terms of how digital currencies work, they use the underlying technology of a blockchain. The blockchain is an electronic database technology that keeps a record of all transactions that use that specific technology. And the record of transactions can be viewed by everyone, and but changed by no one. So that kind of makes it decentralized. In other words, it's an algorithm that enables transactions of an electronic currency without the need for a central ledger or a third-party settlement. So essentially, currency supply that is created by computers doing this mining, and that mining is a process where computers are solving these algorithms, these puzzles, and adding to the blockchain. And then they're rewarded with certain amounts of that digital currency, which creates that currency supply. You know, that's a very good introduction about currency. Blockchain is essentially what we can understand to be a unique identifier for when each currency, cryptocurrency is created. So Bitcoin is created with the process of establishing a blockchain. So you have one party is interested in transferring uh, an asset to another party. So they both log on their computers and each one has their own crypto key. So with this key, it's kind of like a, a catalyst for the transaction. So one member, whoever wants to send the, the transaction, would instigate the transaction by indicating to the recipient, the uh, potential recipient, that with their crypto key, with both crypto keys, they're establishing a transaction. So behind the scenes, there's what the programmers call the hashing mechanism, where it's essentially a string of numbers gets computated 
somewhat like a permutation calculation, where a string of numbers gets computated uh, to create a, an original and authentic identifying transaction so that it's easy to tell down the road since and everything gets recorded on what is known as the distributed open ledger. So it's easy to tell down the road if someone is trying to replicate a transaction or basically carbon copy a, a, a cryptocurrency because once one cryptocurrency is established, it cannot replicate it or, or carbon copy. So the good thing about the blockchain is it makes things very clear, concise, and it's open. Like you can see who, whomever is doing these transactions. The challenging part of creating a blockchain or using a blockchain is the physical creation of uh, each new currency. It takes up processing energy. And you really have to have uh, enough service space to not only withhold the amount of data that needs to be processed, but also just the amount of power that needs to be like processing power itself. What, what's, how are currencies like mined? Basically, mining is the process of building onto the blockchain. So say if a blockchain has one cryptocurrency, mining is the process of computers engaging in the mathematical calculation of what they call quote-unquote hashing. So each time a computer hashes, it fact checks with, like it's a network of computers that are cross-checking with each other to see if this is an actual request for a cryptocurrency to be produced. And, then and it's supposed it, to be more difficult to exactly. mine the larger the blockchain gets? Is that how it works? Yeah, what that is called is proof of work. Is The longer the blockchain, the harder it is to produce. And they've set it up where it's, you can only have a certain, there's a, there's a cap as to how many Bitcoins. Yeah, so in, in terms of money supply, what Stephen's saying is the mining gets more difficult over time. So the amount of Bitcoin, for example, that's rewarded to computers for solving the blockchain problems is less and less over time. So the incremental increase to the money supply has some totes essentially finite in the end. So it kind of puts a cap on the total potential money supply, which is, is one of the big attractive features of digital currency versus traditional currencies. Abe, did you have anything on in terms of how they're, they're regulated? Uh, well, I think Tom really touched on it like that. I guess that's a concern, right? How it's going to be, you know, how our government's going to come into this and try to regulate it once it becomes more widely used. Yeah, I mean, it still is the Wild West days, and policymakers are still formulating opinions and legislation. China has tried to restrict the usage. Individuals can trade it and own it in China, but I, I think it's financial institutions and businesses are not allowed to transact in it. And we still have yet to see where it'll fully shake out in the U.S., but in the state of New York, the New York State Department of Financial Services is attempting to regulate state usage in New York of Bitcoin through the issuance of bit licenses. So the Winklevoss twins started up a Bitcoin exchange called Gemini, where it's a regulated and registered and capital-backed exchange for Bitcoin and Ether, actually, uh, based in New York. And, and so... Americans can open accounts and buy and sell Bitcoins through their exchange. Cool. I just don't see the point if it becomes regulated or overly regulated. You don't see the point of uh, having a digital currency that's regulated? Well, once it's regulated, it loses the reason for its existence. Right. Like, the reason you would want a digital currency is because, quite literally, it's unregulated. That's the attraction to it. That's the appeal. But I think it also appeals to like a strong libertarian base, right? If you're concerned about a government growing too big, and this gives like a decentralizes. Its nature is to decentralize. 
So let's say it becomes widely used internationally, but the country decides to try to regulate it and ban their domestic businesses from using it. Wouldn't that just create like a huge disadvantage for those businesses in the country? Kind of like highly taxing those businesses and then just shift like innovation in other countries. What do you mean? Give an example. So let's say like, let's say China keeps banned, but other countries, it becomes more of an internationally accepted view exchange. And it's used throughout the developing world and the developed world. When that put China has such uses advantage of the companies within China that are trying to do business internationally and like when it shift innovation to other countries. Yeah, I actually agree with you. I uh, think that's a, a case in point of where regulation in one country advantage for, for a country to go against, you know, having it as an accepted free market medium, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, like, China would have its own currency, so they would have to buy Bitcoin with their own currency, and they would have to trade that way, the same way currencies are done nowadays. Like, when you buy something from another country, first you buy their currency, and then you buy their good. Well, he's just saying that, like, by them... It's like barriers to entries within those countries. Like, why would you do business in a country or try to... I mean, I agree with you. I think it would be a massive disadvantage to the citizens of China, but it would not be a massive disadvantage to the government of China. The government of China would benefit heavily because the government of China would be able to receive tax revenue, they would be able to regulate, they would be able to control any economic activity that happens within their domestic nation. All right, that's all we have time for in this episode. We've covered what digital currencies are, why digital currencies have come to prominence in the last few years, how digital currencies work, and how they're currently regulated. Next week, we'll continue with part two, and we'll cover what the pros and cons of digital currencies are, which are the most popular digital currencies, recent developments among digital currencies, and what the future and prospects for digital currencies will look like. Thank you for joining us for our discussion on digital currencies. We'll catch you next time on another edition of the Post Money Plan podcast. Mm -hmm.